Hey folks, Charles here. I wanted to talk to you briefly before the episode starts to remind everyone about the Graduate Research Network, GRN, at Computers and Writing Conference. At my first uh, Computers and Writing Conference, I wrote with my dissertation director to pick up uh, Michael Day and Janice Walker uh, to head over to ride to CW. Uh, before the GRN the next day. And and then I, at my table leader at the GRN became a great friend and collaborator, Devin Ralston. At my second GRN, I met Noah Wason, and we've published two articles together since then. We were both graduate students at the time. If you're unsure about the GRN, maybe you haven't volunteered before, or you maybe you feel like your project isn't developed enough, it's okay. You can still volunteer to mentor, or you can bring your project and get feedback from leading scholars in the subfield of computers and writing. The GRN needs volunteers to serve as mentors. This is one of the most important and generative opportunities to serve our field. The GRN also has spots available for graduate students to present their works in progress. If you would like to volunteer to be a GRN mentor, or if you are a graduate student wishing to attend the GRN, reach out to Donnie Sackey at donnie.sackey at austin.utexas.edu. That's D-O-N-N-I-E dot S-A-C-K-E-Y at austin.utexas.edu. episode 133 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, a talk with Dr. Erica Sparby. Like the classroom is a good space to be having these conversations because, and I just, that's one thing I definitely found out last semester when I was teaching the meme class. It was a PhD student only class. I think it was probably the last batch of millennials that I'm going to get all in one room. I know I know. Um, And so, you know, they're steeped in meme culture, but they're not, they haven't always sat and thought, you know, super critically about memes. And so every week it felt like they had a really concrete takeaway just from, you know, some of the things we talked about, like the privacy issue that we just mentioned. We looked at representations of identities, so like race, gender, sexuality, disability, all to just kind of show like, okay, who becomes the punchline and why? Why are, you know, and what's going on here and how is this both reflecting and amplifying what's happening in culture. But then also the main question that I asked almost every week was something along the lines of how are you and your meaning practices maybe uncritically and unintentionally also reinforcing these sort of negative cultural narratives? How are you complicit in damaging memes? And just getting students to think from that perspective, I think, yielded a lot of just really good reflection where they were able to see how their everyday practices could potentially have larger negative impacts that they hadn't thought about. You'll hear more from Erica in a bit. But first, I want to let you all know that we are seeking nominations for our annual TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. 
The 2023 TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award presented by the Big Rhetorical Podcast. The goal of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award is to highlight graduate students who make significant contributions to rhetoric, composition, and communications in their teaching, service, scholarship, and commitment to diversity and inclusion. The TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award comes with a financial prize of $100. More information, including detailed criteria and instructions, follow. Award Criteria To be eligible for this award, nominees must be enrolled in a graduate program in rhetoric, composition, communications, or a related field during the 2022-2023 academic year. Must exhibit effective teaching strategies in the rhetoric, composition, and communications classroom. Must demonstrate a commitment to diversity and inclusion in the community and in the classroom. Must contribute to the development of the field through their service to their department, institution, and the larger academic community. Must advance critical conversations in the disciplines through the publication of scholarship, including refereed, non-refereed, open access, and digital works. Nomination instructions. To nominate someone for this award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, and bio and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the bio how you or your nominee meet the criteria. Use the subject line Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31st, 2023. Self-nominations are welcome and previous nominees are encouraged to apply. For more information about TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com or Visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Dr. Erica Sparby, they, them, is an Associate Professor of Digital Rhetorics and Technical Communication at Illinois State University. Their research interests include memes, digital aggression, ethics, and risk and crisis communication. Their most recent book is titled Mimetic Rhetorics. They also co-edited the book Digital Ethics with Dr. Jessica Raymond, which won the Computers and Composition Distinguished Book Award. Other work appears in Computers and Composition, Enculturation, and Technical Communication Quarterly. You can find them shitposting on Twitter at, at Sparptastic. I hope you enjoyed the interview.
Uh, what's your name, your title, and your institution, and your role there? Who are you, and what do you do? I am Erica Sparby. Um, I am at Illinois State University as an associate professor of digital rhetorics and technical communication. And my role there is, you know, just teaching and researching. I'm also currently the interim associate chair. Hopefully we'll be um, the full associate chair after an election in a few weeks um, where I make the schedule for everybody. <laughs> that was going to be my follow-up question. What are, the, <laughs> what are the duties of an associate chair? Is, there, is it just scheduling? Pretty much. I also give, get, get to give out uh, new computers to people every year. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like a position that holds a lot of power, but man, I sure have a lot <laughs> of unexpected power. <laughs> How long have you been at Illinois State? Uh, this is my sixth year. Excellent. Uh, so what kind of courses do you teach at Illinois State? You mentioned that you have your, your title is Associate Professor of Technical Communication and Digital Rhetoric. So that's pretty specific. So what kind of courses do you teach? Um, yeah, I mean, I teach uh, technical communication and digital rhetoric. So um, I, I teach our introductory level um, technical communication course. Um, I teach our advanced technical communication course for more advanced um, undergraduates and then also our graduate students, as well as all kinds of different courses at the graduate level, Christ, uh, um, courses on like crisis and risk communication, histories and theories of technical communication, research methods and technical communication, those types of different things. Um, and then for digital rhetorics, I, every year pretty much I teach the, um, the 300 level course that's for advanced undergrads and grad students on digital rhetorics. And then Every once in a while, I get to teach other graduate level courses that are more specific to that, um, such as last semester teaching a course on memes. Long time listeners of the podcast know <laughs> that you are my dissertation director. Uh, <laughs> so we'll get yes. that elephant out of the room. Um, quick story. I love this story. You told this story at my dissertation defense of us meeting. I think this oh, is yeah. an appropriate time to tell this story. I think this is February 2017. I think. Yeah. yeah it would have yeah, it would have been February 2017. Yeah, about six years, six years ago. Six years ago. How did we meet, Dr. Sparby? Mm. I love this story. So I was wrapping up um my PhD at Northern Illinois University um and had just accepted my offer at Illinois State University. And one of the last things that the department was having me do was show around this potential PhD candidate in rhetoric. Uh, and they were like, you'd be a great person to show them around. So his name is Charles. Why don't you give him a tour and, you know, chat with them, whatever you want to do. And so here I am showing Charles around campus with a couple other people in the program, taking, taking him out to lunch. And uh, at some point in the conversation, I say, you know, that I've just got my job at, at ISU and then Charles you <laughs> says that oh I don't want to I don't know if I'm like you know would you say something like I don't know if I'm violating any rules to tell you this but I just stopped by there on my way up here um because I also have got admitted to their program and I've been checking out both of them and I was like I don't know if that's violating anything and I tried not to sway you one way or another um <laughs> you did that's true that is true you you were you <laughs> My job was to talk up NIU, so I did. I talked up NIU and my own dissertation director who I'd been working with and who it seemed like you were going to be a pretty good fit with. Um, 
And then I, you know, at that point, I didn't hear from you ever again, uh, or at least not for several months. So I didn't know where you went until um, I was walking on campus during my first semester. I think it was like a few weeks into the fall semester. And we just ran into each other outside of the student center. And I was like, oh, I guess you made your choice. <laughs> it's good seeing you. Yeah. And that's almost exactly what you said to me, too. If I remember correctly, you're like, oh, this guy. Hey, this guy's here. (laughs) But it's those moments um, that are so interesting to me. The more people I talk to, to hear how they met their mentors, how they met uh, potential people who would help them through their scholarship, influence them perhaps to go to potential programs if they were being uh, was courted, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's always interesting to me because I always then think about the, the larger field, right? Like mm-hmm. how, what would it ha- what would it be like if this person or didn't meet this person? It's these small connections, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned that you taught a class about memes. Sure did. But you also wrote a book about memes. I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) This book is called Mimetic Rhetorics, and it is published from the University of Michigan Press. And I believe it got support from the Digital Rhetoric Collaborative. You can correct me if it did. Okay, excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, They they made the open access publication possible. Oh, fantastic. So this was something that you valued. Was this something you valued going into this project? Did you want this book to be open access or was that something that developed throughout the project? No, I wanted it to be open access from the start um, for a couple different reasons. Just one of them from a a more logistical perspective. I knew this book was going to have lots and lots of images and that Mm, trying to do that over print would have probably been prohibitive. They would have potentially tried to restrict how many images I could have used. Um, and I think being able to show every single meme that I'm talking about is something that a lot of people aren't able to do in their their research on memes because they're restricted, but it's important to be able to see all the different little like intricate variations. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, as someone who does digital rhetoric, and I'm not alone in thinking this, like we're doing a lot of writing and research about things that are directly relevant to like everyday people's lives outside of academia. And I, whenever we can, um, I like when we're able to make research that's accessible to people so that, you know, it's not, you don't have to buy a book for $150 and it's not all super academic-y, but it's something that people can actually get access to, download it, they can read it, you know, that sort of a thing. So let's kind of get into the project's development. Where did Mm -hmm. it come from? How did it come to be? Because one thing I remember years ago, all these years ago now, it feels like, uh, was you mentioning, uh, was it Richard Dawkins, 1976, Mm -hmm. right? As something you had to cite, but you didn't like citing it. Uh, And then we moved forward and you had this incredible, I believe it's in Computers and Composition, about 4chan's and memes uh, article. So this is like, this is your research, okay? This is... um, so let me ask this question before we get to mimetic rhetorics. How did you begin to be so invested, so interested in memes, right? Is it one of those you see everyday things or was there some other driving force? Column A, column B, I guess. Um, I don't, yeah, I never envisioned myself when I started my dissertation work or even my PhD. I didn't think of myself as becoming a meme scholar. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, obviously. Um I was more focused, even the digital aggression stuff, which I think the memes grew out of. Right. Um, 
didn't start there. I started off just being interested in how identities, you know, shape and form and how they happen in digital spaces. And it just so happens that, and I was specifically, I wanted to look at like anonymous spaces. So things like 4chan and memes were really um, easy uh, to lend themselves to, to these types of projects because, you know, 4chan users are all anonymous and most memes, we have no idea who made them, where they come from, right? They just seem to sort of spring up out of the ground and exist. Um, and so those were some of the spaces that I started looking at. And then the digital aggression aspect kind of grew organically out of the anonymous thing, especially since I chose 4chan. Um, and those two things kind of go hand in hand. But um, the meme stuff started with, I, I had a dissertation uh, chapter on the fake geek girl meme as a response to the sort of cultural um, uh, like idea of the fake geek girl or the idiot nerd girl or the, the, the woman who doesn't understand geek culture but tries to be part of it, right? Um, and that work is in one of the chapters in the book as well as sort of expanded out, outward um, from that dissertation chapter. So that's where a lot of that kind of started. But then it's just, it's just since I opened that Pandora's box, it's just like endless um, I'm just constantly, every time I'm looking at memes, I'm thinking um, so much differently about them uh, than I used to, even just a few years ago. A scholar of memes, Dr. Sparby, I would argue you're one of the preeminent scholars of memes and mimetic rhetorics as evidence by the reception to your book, right? Mimetic rhetorics. So let's move forward then a little bit mm -hmm. and talk about this book project. How did it come to be? What is its genesis? And what are the exigencies driving the work today? Yeah, I mean, so it kind of came out of, uh, like I said, it, it, a lot of it came out of my dissertation, just that one chapter. I, I packed a lot of little tidbits into there um, and they didn't really have space to breathe in my dissertation. Um, and when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for a book project, it just was really obvious to me that what I needed to do was just blow that chapter up and make it into a book so that it would have its own. Um, so each little tidbit would have its space to grow a little bit. So that chapter had um, some of the kernels of what became the book. So it had the um, what's become like the eight sort of rhetorical school kit pieces um, that make up, you know, that memers need to use to be able to make memes. So the things like irony, kairos, um, I've even forgotten my own right now. <laughs> I've forgotten what some of them are off the top of my head. That's the nice thing about publishing is that once it's out, I don't have to think as much about it anymore. I know that's actually the, the <laughs> conversation we had when I asked if you went to the podcast. You were like, I don't want to think about it anymore, but I will one more time. <laughs> I will think about it one more time. Um, but and so that's what that's where the sort of that that tool that beginning part of the toolkit came from. And then each other aspect, um, that I talked about was also in that dissertation chapter. So I also talked about the fake geek girl meme and how, um, you know, counter memeing can be a, a form of resistance against harmful memes. I talked a little bit about privacy, but I was able to make that into, you know, a more substantive conversation. And then the chapter on memetic screens actually fell to the cutting room floor of my dissertation chapter. So that was something I had in my proposal that I had planned on working on, but I mean, at 80 pages, that dissertation chapter was becoming 
a dissertation on its own very quickly. So I had to start cutting stuff. <laughs> um, and so that's something that I, I set, I set to the side and I said, I could do something with this later. Um, and so then, yeah, each of those pieces just came back and got some space to breathe. Mm. Well, the emergence of counter memeing in this discussion makes me think there is also memeing, right? Uh, <laughs> so for the, for the sake of our listeners, could you walk through memeing and counter meaning with definitions? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I, should, I guess I should step it back first and explain what a meme is. Um, so a meme is a piece of digital content. It's often text-based, but it doesn't have to be. Um, it's also, it could be, um, or sorry, it's often image-based, but doesn't have to be. There are text memes, there are video memes, there are sound memes as well. But usually when we say meme, we think of the funny little pictures. Um, what differentiates it from other types of digital content that could be similar is that there's been some sort of small change made to it um, that in some way might alter its meaning. So sometimes that means putting new text over it. Sometimes that means using the text from the original one, but putting it on a new image. Um, it has to be remixed in some way and brought into a new context. Um, and so memeing then is uh, the act of doing this. It's... Um, which is a rhetorical act. It's taking a text, making the change to it, spreading it into a community, and then watching where it goes and how it grows. Um, and so, you know, the the memes that seem to see the most success are the ones that kind of um, are attached to maybe a popular event or something that's happening. So I don't talk as much about this in the book because I wasn't ready to talk about it yet, but COVID was a huge, um, moment for memes because we had this like shared collective experience as humanity undergoing this radical transformation of our society and you know watching friends and family get really gravely ill and die and being scared and anxious and a lot of people turned to digital spaces and a lot of people turned to memes to cope and so using sort of dark humor so um you know that's sort of the background of memeing and then Counter-memeing, I use as a phrase for when there's damaging or harmful memes put out into these digital contexts and finding ways to counter them. So the example I use, as I, I've kind of already mentioned, is um, the, the idea that there's no such thing as a real geek girl, um, which has been around for decades at this point. I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time. Um, the sort of the, the people who believe that women can't be authentic geeks. And so I, I talk about a time and it's like two, 10 years ago now um, when a group of feminist geeks decided that they were done with this and they, they created um, their own versions of the idiot nerd girl meme or the fake geek girl meme um, to counter these harmful stereotypes and this harmful idea. And um, how ever since then, I mean, it's been kind of a subtle and slow shift, but um, that was kind of one watershed moment where it seems like things started to get a little bit better in some spaces for some geek girls. There became more more content since then, right? That um, like more uh, pop culture content that sort of seems to accept geek girls. And that narrative doesn't seem to hold the power it used to, this narrative of the fake geek girl. Um, and so that's the power of counter-beaming that I'm, I'm arguing in that chapter. You mentioned toolkit and the, the 
I guess, post colon of your book is toward a toolkit for ethical memeing, even though I, I don't see a colon in the title uh, on the website. <laughs> so uh, my question is about the toolkit approach. Why did you develop a, a toolkit approach to this subject? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I messed around for a long time with a lot of different words to put there and to try to figure out what I wanted to call this sort of collection, this mishmash of rhetorical strategies that people are both consciously and unconsciously using. Um, at one point, I played around with literacies, but I didn't end up going with that one because as someone pointed out, you know, there's, I don't know a lot about literacy scholarship particularly. Like I'm not someone who's in that particular subfield. And so I asked someone who is, and they were like, just don't open that can of worms. <laughs> They're like, you're going to take your project to situate it in this way. You have to take your project in a whole different area. And you you might end up sidebarring yourself for a while or sidelining for a while to try to tease out how you want to frame this, who you're going to frame it with, and how you're going to use the word literacy. Because that can be, I guess, sort of contested. So I took that advice. I was like, I will not use that word. Um, <laughs> even though I think it potentially kind of gets at a little bit of um, what I'm trying to do with the word toolkit. I think literacies does work there too. Um, but the idea of the toolkit that I really like is that it's kind of like you have all these strategies in your back pocket. Um, and when you make a meme, you're just kind of reaching in and pulling out a fistful <laughs> and deciding which ones you're going to use in this particular, this meme, right? Um, and so, because I don't, it's not a, it's not a linear process. It's always recursive. It's always going back on itself. Um, you know, some memes don't use things like kairos or irony or these other sort of rhetorical strategies, um, and they're still successful. So sometimes you don't need to use every tool in the toolkit. Um, and then part of the argument that I'm making, you know, so that that sort of first chapter is outlining the common strategies that seems like a lot of memers do need to use to be able to make a successful meme. But then the next three chapters are making an argument for uncommon strategies that I think memers should be using. So thinking about things about privacy, um, thinking about how our memes are setting up memetic screens and creating communities that are either letting people in or repelling the people that we don't want. Um, thinking about how our memes can counter these sort of negative um, ideologies or stereotypes. And so these are things that aren't always present mm -hmm. in a lot of memes, but could be. So countering stereotyping types, building community, privacy. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that last point, privacy, which should be no, no it's surprise. No surprise to whatsoever. Or to anyone that <laughs> hears this audio file. Um, so what are your arguments or what is your analysis or what are you arguing that folks should be concerned about at the intersections of memeing and privacy? Yeah, I'm mostly concerned about the information that an image can convey. And 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 it, and I'm mostly, you know, looking at images, but as I said, these could also be video clips, sound clips, text, these different types of things, right? Um, but for instance, I give a lot of different examples um of people who have been used in memes without their knowledge or consent. So like there's um Maggie Goldenberger 
whose image was used for the Irma Gerd meme. Um, someone found that meme, found that image on Reddit, decided it looked funny and made a meme out of it. And then it blew up and she became this like really popular meme. I talk about um, Antoine Dodson, Ben Intruder. So that's that one's a more that's a video, right? Um, where audio was taken from an interview that he did after his sister um, was nearly raped. And so, you know, he's, it's a moment of high stress. And I'm, I know, as I say, I think I say this almost exactly in like this in the book where, you know, he almost certainly expected people are going to see this interview on TV, but he didn't expect it to be then remixed into a song and then spread throughout the internet, wherever across the world, he probably only expected people, and I think it was the Chicago area, um, to see it, right? And I give a few different examples of this. Raza Lane, Star Wars kid, he happened, he accidentally left um, a video uh, that in the camera of his AV club of him messing around and, you know, pretending to be in a Star Wars battle. And he, his classmates found it. I mean, they teased him, they bullied him. So like, while the nation was like thinking Star Wars kid was this like fun, thing there was a real kid who was suicidal at the other end of that right and so when I'm talking privacy I'm talking let's think about the people who are in the memes that we're sharing um you know if we're the originator of a meme think about where you got that picture from who is it do they know their pictures there how would they feel about this and you know in the especially in the case of something like Raza and like with Star Wars kid but then also I talk about Sammy Greiner, who was um, the uh, success kid meme. He was like three years old when that happened, right? Um, kids can't consent. So um, <laughs> what else could you use instead of a human um, in, in those memes? But then also thinking about other identifying markers. I mean, anyone who's spent any time on 4chan knows that these are people who, when they really put their collective power together, can see one image. And I've seen them like see a street sign in the background and they see the sun is shining from a specific angle and there's like a shadow or something. And they're able to use this really obscure, vague information to pinpoint the exact address that that person might be at, right? Or something like that. Um, and so just being really careful about what gets shown and how it gets shown because um, we could potentially be doing damage to people who are showing up in these images, right? And I, I pull a lot of the ideas for this from um, Cagle's article on Stranger Shots because I think it's it intersects very similarly what's going on with memes and with these Stranger Shots is just people who don't know their pictures are being used in a specific way. I imagine that many of the listeners of this podcast have had their students create memes in class. I know that I have. <laughs> You, I'm sure I know that you have. You just mentioned earlier you've taught a whole class on it. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Let's say towards best practices. All right, because yeah. that's. But like, what are what are some things that instructors should be thinking about as they engage with working with memes through analysis, through production, with their students? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, towards is the name of the game. I don't think I make any solid claims about anything in this entire book. It's all towards something, towards something else. Um, but I think a lot of those types of considerations should be, are like the classroom is a good space to be having these conversations because, and I just, that's one thing I definitely found out last semester when I was teaching the meme class. 
Um, it was a PhD student only class. I think it was probably the last batch of millennials that I'm going to get all in one room. Um, I know, I know. Um, and so, um, you know, they're steeped in meme culture, but they're not, they haven't always sat and thought, you know, super critically about memes. And so every week it felt like they had a really concrete takeaway just from, you know, some of the things we talked about, like the privacy issue that we just mentioned. Um, we looked at representations of identity. So like race, gender, sexuality, disability, um, all to just kind of show like, okay, who becomes the punchline and why, um, why are, you know, and what's going on here and how is this both reflecting and amplifying what's happening in culture. But then also the main question that I asked almost every week was something along the lines of how are you and your meaning practices maybe uncritically and unintentionally also reinforcing these sort of, you know, negative cultural narratives? Um, how are you complicit in damaging memes? And just getting students to think from that perspective, I think yielded a lot of um, just really good reflection where they were able to see how their everyday practices could potentially have larger negative impacts that they hadn't thought about. Um, but also the importance of just pausing for a moment while creating memes because meme creation tends to be fast, it's sloppy. So anyone who's made a meme knows you like you don't spend a lot of time crafting the perfect meme. Um, and then anyone who was in the workshop I did with ATTW over like last summer knows that, you know, I didn't give a lot of time to make memes either to, to sort of replicate that. Like you gotta have it, you gotta come up with it pretty quickly. Um, but there is still value in taking a moment to pause, think, reflect, and just consider the larger context that this will be shared in. Are you doing harm to anyone? Um, is this a meme that's going, yeah, is this a meme that will harm someone? Is this a meme that needs to exist? Like, is there a way to make it less harmful, but not, you know, lose its punchline, lose its funniness? Um, you know, just to take these moments and just think um, and consider because overall then I think you end up making a higher quality meme too. Because memes that punch up or don't punch at all are definitely funnier, I think, than the ones that punch down. Yeah. So there's a certain, uh, oh, I'll use a bad word here, expediency <laughs> 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 to memes, to yeah. meaning, right? That's important. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to pause, be reflexive, and be critical. And I love that question. Uh, I think that's probably a question most memers should ask. Does this meme need to exist? <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a good question. It's a hard one to answer though, too, because like a lot of memeing is shit posting. And there's a pretty strong argument that those memes don't really like need to exist. But um, but it is still, I think, a useful question to think about um in terms of, you know, I mean, because memes are usually inserted in the middle of conversations that are ongoing. That's part of why they have to happen so quickly. Um, not always. Sometimes you can just post a meme out of context. Um, but yeah, just thinking like, you know, is it is it helpful or hurtful to have a meme here? And is this meme gonna, you know, make things worse? In preparation for this chat, I was thinking about how poor the podcast genre is for discussing memes uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, you know, primary sonic mode. Um, 
alas. Um, what's your favorite meme? But I know that's not the right question. So what's your favorite style of meme? Yeah, I get this question a lot and I never have a good answer for it because I mean, it just changes. My favorite meme is the one I'm laughing at right now, like at the current moment, right? But I am drawn to the really like abstract and absurd style of memes um, more than anything. And so one that always pops into my head whenever someone asks this question, it's, I don't even know if it's my favorite, but it always comes to my, to my mind because it's so stupid. It's the kind of shit posts that I was talking about that maybe doesn't need to exist, but it does. And it's wonderful. Um, it's just this like kind of semi psychedelic looking image of a hippo walking through an open door and it just says, have you drank enough water today? <laughs> um, so like those types of memes just, just get me every time. They just tickle my funny bone in ways that I can't even really explain. And I even have a couple of these types of examples in the book too. Like there's one where <laughs> it's got a leg <laughs> with like this egg-shaped head on top of it. And it says something in glitch text, like, here's your free cholesterol. Like, what does that even mean? I don't know. It means nothing. But it just it just tickles my funny bone every time. Just the stuff, the stupid stuff like that. So one of the things I've learned uh, from working with you, uh, uh, both at ISU, but also being your friend in social media spaces, like Facebook, okay? So listeners, mm -hmm. I don't know, like you, you can tell me to cut this out, but but Dr. Sparby has like a couple of Facebook groups devoted just to one. me. Just one, okay. It used <laughs> to be multiple, but it's been consolidated to one, I suppose now, okay, that are about memes, right? And mm -hmm. sharing memes and talking about memes. And one thing, I, I look at it all the time, a lurker, uh, is that these like absurd shit posting memes are, are intentionally made. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's fascinating. They're a craft. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they come into be. I'm not very good at making that style of meme at all. Um, I'm not very good at that sort of like weird abstract thinking that can create something like that, but I sure enjoy the hell out of them. Um, but yeah, Dr. Sparbtastic's meme emporium. For anyone who wants to join, feel free. Um, it's a great space. Uh, it was really funny running into a few people at Seas um, last week who are in the meme group, but who I have never met in person. And it was also really funny to me that they met me, they knew my name, but they didn't realize that I am Dr. Sparbtastic. <laughs> um, so it's me, Sparbtastic. That's me. Uh, <laughs> that's my meme group if you're already in it. <laughs> so... I saw on social media, like, you know, the reception to mimetic rhetorics has been outstanding. Um, I hope that much of that is a positive reception. Uh, as we were talking before the interview, there's going to be some negative reception. Yeah, 6,000 downloads doesn't seem like, are there even 6,000 people in our field? I like No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. So at least a handful of those are definitely going to end up being like, I don't know, some 4chan trolley types, probably. I'm sure I'm going to hear from it. Maybe if I pop into 4chan, they're talking about it already, like they did with my one article. Well, let's talk about those folks, folks outside the field, right? Mm -hmm. Outside even the academy. Uh, for those folks that read your book, well, what do you hope they take up and take away from it? 
Um, I mean, just the same thing I want everyone to take away from it is just a more critical eye towards memes and memeing practices. So, you know, I hope that people who are reading this who make memes, teach memes, research memes, whatever they do with memes, that they're just looking at it from a slightly different perspective with a, a more critical eye towards the power that memes have and the need to just be careful and be aware and conscious of how we're memeing um, and trying to do so in a way that doesn't actively harm people. Now, obviously, there's like some of the people out there, digital aggressors. I mean, they make some memes with the actual intent of harming people. I'm not going to get through to those people. Those aren't my audience because they're the people who are going to, they're mean to be mean, right? Um, but the people who don't know, uh, the people who uh, are just not as critical of the content that they're sharing and circulating, you know, I'm hoping that they just think a little bit more before they share an image or create a meme. So research in memes across disciplines, not just in rhetoric, uh, obviously exists. Um, and this is a question, admittedly, some scholars push back a little bit and they say, I don't want to, you know, influence anyone's research trajectory. But isn't that what we're doing <laughs> when we write books and research articles? I feel like we hope we are. <laughs> I think so. Uh, so for researchers who want to do this work, and by this work, I mean study memes uh, in rhetoric and technical communication, um, who want to continue to interrogate the impact, the influence of memetic rhetorics, of memes. What are some ideas or trajectories for scholars to think about going forward after your book, Memetic Rhetorics? This is a great question um, because, so I'm in the process right now of just beginning to think about a CFP for an edited collection of memes. Um, and so, because I, you know, I, 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 the book is out and there's so much more to say, but I don't want to be the only one saying it um, because I think where a lot of the work needs to still be done with memes are is at the intersection of memes and identity. Um, because as I talk about in the introduction, any study of memes has to be autoethnographic uh, by nature, just because of the way that we exist in social media and our digital spaces, the way that we come across memes organically is absolutely tied to the way that we interact in our different spaces and, and who we are in those spaces. Um, like I talk explicitly about how the memes that I'm studying are very much in a Western context because right. that's what I know. Um, you know, I had a I had someone who wanted to suggest that maybe I should study some Polish memes, but like I don't have any grounding in like Polish culture. So there's so much of that, the intricacies of memes outside of the US basically that I would just miss. I, I'm not primed for that. Um, Similarly, someone else asked me if I was going to be looking at like Black Twitter. And I know because I'm not part of that community. And it would be really weird for me to like try to come. It'd be like that sort of like researcher power move of like participant observation and like the researcher is God and trying to examine these spaces that they don't belong to and can never fully belong to because of their positionality. Right. Um, and so. I'm hoping to do an edited collection that invites people to take these auto-ethnographic approaches to studying memes to be able to give perspectives into different meme communities um, that not everyone is going to be able to have access to. So like I do talk about queer memes, for instance, because, because I'm in a ton of queer groups um, and do a lot of stuff with queer memes because that's part of my identity. Um, but even then, 
my queer experience isn't everyone else's queer experience, right? Um, and so that's where I am hoping to see memes going, is having a more developed understanding of the ways that memes work in different communities because they're so grounded in identity and who we are. That's really cool. I already, I wrote, I, I wrote like three abstracts in my head, right? While you were talking, I was like, oh, I want to talk about Foucault in memes, or I want to talk about mm -hmm. this in memes, right? Yeah, um, there's so much left to be done. I mean, it's the surface is barely being scratched um, so far in, in our field, in rhetoric anyway. I mean, other fields are also doing stuff too, but um, there's, there's a lot to be done yet. Where can people find information about the book or you if they want to reach out to you <laughs> after hearing this podcast episode? Where can they find this information online? Um, yeah, the book is uh, linked. I think it's the University of Michigan Press. Um, the way that I always find it whenever I need to find it is I just Google Mimetic, Mimetic Rhetoric, Mimetic Rhetoric, <laughs> University of Michigan, um, <laughs> which I've had to do a lot. You'd think I would just bookmark it, but that'd be way yeah. too easy. Um and then if you want information on me, uh, I guess you could go to my website. I don't remember the last time I've updated it, but <laughs> it's uh, E-M-S-P-A-R-B at, or not at, uh, sorry, that was about to spell my email address, um, dot com. <laughs> so it's my work, my work email is E-M-S-P-A-R-B at ilstu.edu, right? So my website is just E-M-S-P-A-R-B. <laughs> we need to talk to the site people at Illinois State and get them to update both of those to Dr. Sparbtastic. Uh, I wish, man. If I could just be Sparbtastic at Ilstu, that'd be pretty sweet. Perfect. <laughs> what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> I'm supposed to be grading. Uh, we're we're uh, all supposed to be grading, Dr. Sparbtastic. <laughs> I know. Um, but I decided to reorganize my bedroom instead. So um, I'm halfway through putting books back on shelves. I want to say like right now, so my, the main thing I'm trying to figure out what to do, I have all seven Harry Potter books and because JK Rowling is a piece of shit, I don't want them anymore. Right. <laughs> but I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with them because the books are not recyclable. Uh, most of them, most of them are not because the there's chemicals in the paper, but I also don't want to donate it to like Goodwill or something, because I don't want some other kid to read her anti-Semitic, thinly veiled um, trash. So, um, uh, and, I, and it feels weird to just throw a book out or to burn a book. So I'm trying to figure out what to do with them um, that isn't just wasting them or putting them in the trash. So that's something I'll be doing this afternoon is Googling what other people have done with their Harry Potter books. I'm going to say, I was, I'm not going to pretend to have an answer on what to do with your Harry Potter books. I'm actually going to say, listeners, if you have any ideas, <laughs> Dr. Sparktastic yeah. should do with Harry Potter books, let us know. Yeah, find, find me on Twitter at Sparktastic and let me know what I should do with this, this trash pile of books. This has been a treat, a highlight. <laughs> Of, yeah. of doing this podcast. Uh, thanks for all that you've done for me over the few years, but oh, also thank you. thank you for joining this, this podcast and talking to me about Mimetic Rhetorics, which is available now, open access, the University of Michigan Press. Thanks, Dr. Awesome. Sparby. Thank you so much, Charles. It's been a pleasure. It was great to see you as well as always. Great to see you too.
hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Erica Sparby. That was the coolest interview ever, right? I've been thinking about interviewing Erica for quite a while, but I could never find the right angle or frame. And then, boom, they published their second book, Mimetic Rhetorics. There are a lot of people I want to talk to, to interview on this podcast, and Erica was one of them. Consider this a bucket list interview, for sure. I appreciate them telling the story of how we met, too. I think that's the coolest story. And I really can't stress enough how great an experience it was to work with them during the dissertation project. Thanks for sitting for this interview, Dr. Sparby. You all make sure to check out their book, Mimetic Rhetorics Toward a Toolkit for Ethical Memeing, available now through the University of Michigan Press. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Ling, Stefa Helix, and Airtones. Tones.